Hello, friends of the show, regular listeners, new listeners, come on in, pull up a chair. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Madam's Cast. I'm delighted that you're here listening, and I've got an absolute gem of a guest today. Uh, anyone out there who's into their wild food, their foraging, um, on whatever level that is, is going to be excited about today's guest. And if they're not, um, I, I'm very excited to be able to introduce you all to Jeff Dan, foraging legend. Jeff, are you there? I am here. Hello, Excellent. Tim. Excellent. And um, but for the sake of a bit of geographical reference for us, whereabouts are you, Jeff? At the moment, I am in Hastings. Oh, very nice. Very nice down there on the south coast. Is it a lovely day? It's, no, it's actually quite miserable. It's overcast and cold. I don't know what's happened to spring. It's, uh, it's, not, come quite, up here. it's not quite sprung properly. but um, <laughs> It's come uh, up here. It's, it's in northeast Scotland today. That's where <laughs> spring is. Uh, and and it's stretching its uh, it's stretching its muscles a little bit. Although we did have a, a fairly heavy frost the night before last, so we're not quite there yet. Um, right. So, Jeff, um, you know the format of the Madam's Cast. I'm going to go through the whole process with you. We're going to have a little chat. You're going to choose three things to change uh, about the world of food, and then on the way out, we'll choose a. a, a we all get to choose a, a desert island book, if you like, and a drink to have with it and nominate somebody else to come on the Madam's Cast. But before we do any of that, um, I'm in danger of, of, of creating a, a less than brilliant episode of the Madam's Cast because I know you, uh, we are acquainted, and that's fine for me, and it's uh, hopefully not too bad for you, but the listeners might not know who you are or would like a bit more information. So can you give us a little tiny potted history of Jeff and how you've got from where you were to where you are now? Okay, um, I'm 54. I'm a foraging teacher and the author of two 500-page books on foraging. Uh, I got into fungi foraging in my teens when almost nobody did it. Um, I was a science and nature junkie and radical environmentalist, something like a cross between Chris Packham and Richard Dawkins. Uh, I was a software engineer making flight simulators. I had a radical shift in my worldview in early 30s. I rejected the metaphysical materialism that underlies a uh, Dawkinsian belief system as logically incoherent and turned towards mysticism. Um, when I was made redundant in 2005, I decided to take a leap in the dark, go to Sussex University to study philosophy, to try to make sense of these very different ways of understanding reality, uh, science and mysticism. Uh, it was very rewarding, but by the end of it, it was basically unemployable. Um, I started teaching fungi foraging in 2009 because that was the only way I could earn money. Mm -hmm. um, I knew there was a gap in the market for a really comprehensive book on fungi foraging, so I started collecting photos. Uh, my first book, Edible Mushrooms, came out in 2016 and has now sold over 20,000 copies. So in 2017, I started work on a book about plant and seaweed foraging, and Edible Plants came out earlier this year. It's the first European foraging book to come from a food insecurity point of view since the 1950s. Um, when I was writing it, I was a bit worried that people would think I was exaggerating the threat, but first the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine has changed all that. Um, I'm now preparing for the next big transition in my life. I've lived in South East England my whole life, but my family is now in the process of buying a small holding in West Wales, where we are going to become as self-sufficient and off-grid as possible. I'm also planning my next book, which will be about why I believe Western civilization is doomed and what a sustainer and saner and sustainable world might look like. Uh, for a taste of that, there's an article on my website, jeffdan.co.uk, just called On Collapse. Wow, what an introduction and what a journey. I mean, I'm finding it, uh, I think um, I've had a few different stages to my life. I've done lots of different things, but uh, the, the the breadth, the rainbow of, uh, of of movement in yours is astounding, especially the, the switching of philosophies and changing of beliefs. I'm very excited about that. And I'm very excited to talk to you today um, because I know that uh, I will get such great answers from you. Um, for the listeners out there, anyone who hasn't seen uh, Jeff's brilliant mushroom book, okay, so that's how I got to know Jeff. A publisher wrote to me and asked me randomly, uh, because I certainly know nothing near, nowhere near as much about mushrooms as, as Jeff does, if I would um, uh, review Jeff's uh, first book. And 
I, I did that and I was delighted to have a copy of it. And I thought, hang on, this is rapidly becoming my favorite mushroom book. Actually, it is my favorite mushroom book. It's the one I tell everybody to buy. And I was literally lamenting last year. A couple of great foraging books came out last year. But I was thinking, what I really need is I need that side of the desk go to Bible. Um, and then lo and behold, Jeff, you've written it. Uh, how long has it taken you to write um, uh, edible plants? Well, it started in 2017, so so five, six years of of searching for plants and experimenting to try and work out um, to, to try and resolve a lot of conflicts. Really, there's a lot of, of of unclear information about edible wild plants out there, disagreements of what's edible and what isn't. Um, yeah. Certainly, what tastes good and what doesn't. Yeah. So you have to you have to try and find these things, both to get the photos of them and to actually kind of come to your own opinion on on their edibility so yeah so six years it's taken um it was it was a lot of work yeah um, yeah yeah i'll bet encyclopedic really and actually i think you may you raise a really good point there because unless you're sort of into plant medicine or you're specifically searching for for, for, for something that's going to give you a very specific nutrient or something like that i think there's an awful lot of pointless foraging knowledge you can pick up um, or at least not very useful foraging knowledge you can pick up. You can learn to identify a lot of plants that are very marginally useful in a culinary sense. I'm very greedy. That's my motivation for foraging. Not greedy in the sense of I want to take everything, but I want to explore flavours and I want to find useful things and I want to indulge in them when they're in season and enjoy them. And I think there's, that fine, there's a fine line for me between just the study of fascinating botany, which there's nothing wrong with, and that crossover to foraging, where really foraging for me personally and i think foraging probably means its own thing for everyone even if that yeah i, I think i think that's the key it, 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 there's lots of different reasons why people get into foraging sometimes it's it's from a culinary sense of view of, of um point of view mm -hmm. sometimes it's it's from a food security point of view sometimes it's just because people want an excuse to to, to get them out there and walking i know people who who, who never had the motivation to do any exercise until they got into foraging. And now suddenly they've got a reason to, to, to walk for miles and miles and trying to find mushrooms and things. So the, the, it's, it's a very personal, um, each different person's got their own reasons why they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair play to them. Okay, great. Well, um, this is leading us nicely towards our first, uh, the first of our three points that I'm going to ask you to make the first of the three things I'd like you to change or that you would like to change about the world of food. Now, that's a pretty broad remit. Some people go uh, very micro on it. Some people go quite macro, zoomed in or helicopter, whichever way you want to put it. Um, I'm fascinated to hear what your points are going to be. Um, but before we dive in, could you give us your three favourite springtime forages? Three favourite? Oh, no, you, you really are. Oh, um, I know, I've got you on the, on the spot. There. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know I'd I'm probably sorry. say ladies smock. Uh, as, a, as a salad plant and um, alexanders oh i love um, alexanders and it's just um early spring and available when lots of other things aren't um and uh let's pick a, a, a seaweed let's say let's say let's go for grassalaria um oh has it got yeah. another name uh organori or slender wartweed <laughs> That sounds like an insult for a skinny young man, doesn't it? All right, slender wartweed, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the most attractive um, English common name, which is why I tend to go for the Japanese the Japanese version, Ogunori. It's in your top three. What's so great about it? Tell me about it, because I'm fascinated by seaweed, but I've, I've done very little seaweed foraging, maybe a bit of dulse here and there. I, I'm just fond of that one because it's one that came up when I was researching the book. I, I, I made a list of all the things that, all the seaweeds that, all, all plants in general, but all the seaweeds that were recorded as eaten anywhere in the world and all the all of the seaweeds that were known to, to grow in the UK. And I just kind of figured out, you know, which is on both these lists. And Gracilaria was unusual in that it was it came up as being extremely popular in, in Japan and, and Hawaii, or relatives of the European species were, uh, to the point that they were foraged out of existence in Hawaii. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, but they were not mentioned at all in any European foraging books. So I, I just went out and thought, well, what can I find this? What, what can I do with it? And ended up sort of spending quite a few years experimenting with my own recipe for it. And, and, it, and it's become the most popular dish that I serve on our um, coastal foraging courses. Um, What's the dish? 
the dish gratinaria is a, a salad so you this this is a seaweed is a long looks like long red thick hair almost. okay okay um and it's uh you just blanch it for for 30 seconds and it turns from red to green and you serve it with salted cucumber and thinly sliced shallots and chilies and small small sliced sliced chilies and a, and a dressing the dressing is made of a uh, Rice vinegar and sesame oil, um, and something else that's gone out of my head at the minute. Um, I could be soy, maybe, yeah, soy sauce, um, and sugar, honey. Oh. Um, so and it all just kind of mixed together, it just you got this kind of taste ex- flavor explosion, and the, and the textures of it as well. It's, it's it just it just all works together. In you know, you don't need much of it, it's just a kind of appetizer, but it's. Yeah, I've, I've yet to come across anyone who doesn't like it. So yeah, that, that, that that's my 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 curveballs unusual pick for for a favourite spring forage. I once um I once served an Alexander ice cream with a birch syrup um to move on to Alexander's and uh, and that's an that's an unusual flavour, isn't it, Alexander? Sort of somewhere between I don't know, what would you say fennel and celery, something like that? Uh, certainly some carrot in it. Oh, okay. I'd say somewhere between carrot and parsley actually. Um, oh, okay, okay. It, I don't think it does have that. I mean, maybe it has a hints of fennel, but it's not. You know, it's not a really strong fennel flavour. Uh, the p- important thing I find with, I mean, it's mainly the stem I go for mm-hmm. in um, at Alexander's, and I, and I boil that first or steam it first and, and change the water, um, just to get rid of that bitterness. Uh-huh. And what's left, I think, is a kind of cross between parsley and carrot. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I've used Alexander's in various different uh, in different ways. It's it's a well. To, to fall into the trap of the most clever marketing campaign on earth. It's a very Marmite sort of vegetable, isn't it? Or, or forage. People yep. either love it or they hate it. Yep. Excellent. Um, oh, okay. All right. Well, look, um, that's, I could basically sit here and talk to you for the next four days about foraging. I mean, you would get very tired of it, I'm sure, very quickly. Um, although I've, I've seen you teaching and giving demonstrations and your passion for your subject comes across. Your depth of knowledge is incredible. Um, so, Rather than do that, which would be great for me, but not so great for all the listeners, um, let's have the three things that you would like to change about the world of food, starting at the top with number one. You're in your fantasy world. It's exactly like this world, but you can change stuff uh, by the by the way of whim. So okay. let's hear it. Well, actually, number one is so big that number two and number three are, are, are subsets of it. So, so, so number one is a really big overall thing, and number two and number three are... are, are, are are focusing in on certain aspects of it. Number one, achieve 100% food self-sufficiency in the UK. Um, we're currently about 60%. It's been falling since the early 1980s. It was 78% in 1984. So uh, achieve 100% food sufficiency in the UK, and, I, and I'd aim to do it by 2030. Um, wow. I've got, I'll go through a list of, 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 of the sort of things that um, we do. As I'd say uh, the UK and any other country that wants to ensure its people do not go hungry in the coming food mega crisis must be prepared for a situation like that, which occurred during World War Two, when no food imports were guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to require a lot of joined up thinking, but it will include, among many other things. First, aim for zero population growth preferably a population reduction. Otherwise, we will be running to stand still. Whoa, that's, that's an elephant in the room, that one, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit controversial. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's also absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gro- yeah, yeah. Growth, economic growth and, and population growth and consumption growth cannot go on forever and no. they can't go on for much longer. To, number two, declare war on all types of food waste. Number three, encourage people to produce their own food where possible and maybe aim for a legal requirement where everybody who lives in a house without a garden has access to an allotment. Mm-hmm. Uh, both both those last two imply much more conversion of food waste into compost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my fourth one, reclaim our fisheries, as was agreed in the Brexit agreement. Try to implement a cultural change where British people learn to like our own fish products, such as herring and mackerel, mm. which we export in vast quantities, which apparently we don't like eating them. They're among the healthiest of all animal-derived food, and we should aim not just to keep our fishing at a sustainable level, but to increase levels of fish stocks year on year. And just to add to this... Wow. Um, um, I actually went into Sainsbury's yesterday and they had no roll mop herrings for sale. And oh, I asked no. why. And because we in Sainsbury's imports its roll mop herrings from Russia. 
crazy. We've got <laughs> why? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great example of the lunacy in our in our food system uh, that, that that has come uh, that's come to exist. I mean that's that is crazy. They were probably they were probably caught by the Scottish pelagic fleet and sold to the Russians and then processed in Russia and um, um, sent back to anyway. That um, much more utilization of wild deer as food. Um, there are far too many of them roaming around the UK countryside. They have no predators apart from cars. Apart from causing loads of road accidents, they eat everything they can reach, which is causing difficulties for other wildlife, including competing herbivores and nesting birds. They need to be systematically culled and we need to stop being put off by the strong taste of venison. It's about as healthy as meat gets, 100% organic. I don't know why it's so expensive. It costs nothing to produce. So, yeah, eat more deer. Plant fruit trees instead of ornamental trees in public spaces. And ditto edible hedges, both in private and public settings. So that's a sort of... Some of the ideas, I think, but the, the, the goal is to get to 100% food self-sufficiency. So if we need to, we can just survive on, on food that we produce in this country. That is incredible. <laughs> Not only as an idea, because I love it as an idea. I think, I think it's fantastic. Um, I'd like, I, I, I sort of tempted to say 99% um, because I think there's a couple of things I'd quite like uh, you know, like a bit of soy sauce uh, and, and the odd, you know, little special treat from the other side of the globe. But I, I totally get where you're going with this. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of that as one point. And then well, the little let me just, facets in there. Let me, let me just um, take you up on the soy sauce thing. Yeah, go, soy, go. Soybeans aren't really a, a product at the moment. If, we, if we're growing soybeans in this country on any large scale, it probably means climate change has got really, really bad. Okay. But uh, take another example is coffee. Um, we, we don't, I don't want to envisage a, a, a time when we're growing coffee in the Pennines, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, <laughs> but if we provided, we, we need to be aimed to be exporting as much food in, in value as we import. So we can basically swap herrings for coffee. Um, got you, got you, we, got we, you. You know, it doesn't mean to mean we just have to be totally insular and, and no trade with the outside world, but we mustn't be dependent on importing food. That's a very dangerous strategy. Okay, um, that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, I get that. So we look at that 100% food self-sufficiency as a whole. So our our sort of net exports and our net imports are, are, of food are yeah, the need, same. We need static. to be aim, aiming to be a net net exporter. Okay, that's okay. Okay, and so in terms of land mass, uh, I mean, we've got enough. I mean, I, we are incredibly densely populated island, right? Yes, we are. Um, and it, it would require joined up thinking uh, uh, f- from the top down, um, as well as encouraging people at the bottom to kind of in- increase their own food, food output. It was, it, it was achieved during the Second World War, um, but it was only achieved. It wasn't achieved via the free market. It was achieved because there was a government, uh, a massive government project to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and when we get on to number number two, I think uh, uh, there's there's been some developments on that yesterday. Um, it, it it can be made to happen, but it requires a, a political will to make it happen. If there's no political will to make it happen, it certainly can't happen. Um, That's very interesting. Um, so your deer point was quite a, an interesting one because I was working with a charity a couple of years ago called the Country Food Trust, and we were buying venison from game dealers when it was practically. Um, going to waste because all the restaurants were shut and we were giving that away in one kilo bags via food banks and it was very very popular because it's very short on protein so the venison one i'm 100 on board with especially if you want to grow more crops and you want to grow more trees which is a big drive to grow trees these days well that means you've got to fence out the deer or take the ultimate action which is to get them down to a sustainable level so i uh, totally with you on that one as well but that Charity was run by a guy called Tim Woodward at the time, who was the CEO. And when he came on my podcast, he suggested that a good way of tackling one of the many facets of this point one of yours would be to um, uh, would be to make all the food retailers, supermarkets and so forth, um, make them all non-profit organisations. Do you think that might be part of the answer or are you thinking sort of central government control over food systems? Not necessarily central government control. I'm not not a big believer in some sort of. I mean, that sounds like what Chairman Mao did. Um, that's <laughs> not even quite need to go that far. Okay, okay. It, it's more a case of the the government needs to be dictating the strategy. Uh-huh. Um, 
I mean, that's I I I would want to think about that idea before giving you an, an answer yeah, off yeah. the cuff. Yeah, um, how how does this do, make them non-profit? I mean, I would vote for that. Okay, yeah, you know, the yeah, simple yeah. answer is I I would vote for it. Yeah. But I'd, I'd like to you know my my, my go-to uh, way to respond to things like this is to kind of get my thoughts in head and, and post a, a post online and start a debate about it, yeah. which is what I'm really trying to do and. And without having done that, I don't want to go come down firmly for saying non-profit. I mean, maybe people still do need to make a profit out of it. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that is, is, is a quick one. But you yeah. know, if you ask yeah. me to vote for it, I'd say, why not? Yeah, I'm there. I'm in the queue behind you. I've got my little miniature pencil. I'm voting for it as well. Um, OK, excellent. Well, if you want to start a conversation, it feels like you're definitely doing that. And I, <laughs> I've now got more questions to ask than that you could possibly answer in the time allotted to the Madam's Cast. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to write down 100% self-sufficiency on food. Um, and I'm going to stick that down as a title. I've put a few other bits and pieces here as a point. I can't really make it any more succinct than that. It's such a vast, vast thing. But it's made me really excited to hear... Uh, what or very very interested anyway to hear what point number two is going to be. So, what's the second thing that you're going to change? I mean, I understand it might be part of point one, but yeah, yeah, significantly increase the amount of seaweed in the British diet. And the the interesting news story, and I just literally I was looking at the, the, the BBC webpage when when I was waiting for you to come on, and it's, it's a new seaweed academy is opening in Oban in Scotland yesterday to facilitate exactly this. Is a Scottish government has funded it. Right. And it's a it's a new uh, academy to teach people how to to farm for seaweed. So the, the, the Scottish government's obviously on board with this. Um, I just let me just read what I've written down about it. It's really part of number one, but it's a big enough topic to deal with on its own. Uh-huh. Obviously, directly related to foraging, although wild species would need careful protection and management. But seaweed farming is a win-win, and there's not many of them out there. No. It, does, it would not require fertiliser. It actually cleans up excess nitrates and phosphates in the water, put there by human activity of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. And it does not take space from wildlife. It actually provides new habitat for juvenile sea creatures where there was previously only open shallow water. Seaweed makes up 10% of the Japanese diet. It could play a similar role in the future in the UK. People just need to understand what to do with it. And, and how to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Well, can you give me a bit more on that then? So how, um, so what are the, what would be the three main species, if you like? I don't know why I'm choosing three. Maybe it's the top two, but give me a couple of examples of what species those would be and an idea of, of how they're grown. Because in my head, I'm like, seaweed clings to rocks. Do you have to plant it or do you, do you just create a habitat for it to thrive in? How does it work? Most seaweed grows needs a substrate to grow something grows in sand at low tide um most mostly it grows on rocks mm-hmm. yeah so yeah you just you need a, a, some sort of artificial substrate an artificial reef of, of some sort um and uh, or it can be grown on ropes um oh, okay quite often in many uh, i say that there are the, the life cycle is not simple in many cases life cycle is is quite complicated I mean, a good. I mean, you ask for two two species. I'll go for two two groups. Okay. Uh, one will be kelp, um, which is a, pro- probably the the best known large bulk seaweed. Mm-hmm. It's a whole group of seaweeds uh, if the, that's farmed around the world. Um, various sorts of different sorts of kelp. And the the second one would be larva or or the Japanese uh, Asian versions of it, which is are used for wrapping sushi. Uh-huh. Uh, and these have got uh, had a particularly complicated life cycle. They've got two different alternating stages, and uh, and uh, people didn't realise at first what the 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 the, the, the non seaweedy uh, stage was actually a, a lava at all. And there was a British lady whose name I still can't remember. Um, I can't have time to look it up, but she she actually worked out who it was, uh, how this life cycle of lava works in in, in the nineteen twenties. And it revolutionised um, seaweed cultivation in Japan. She's now a, a Japanese national hero, and there's actually a, a national holiday to her in Japan. Wow, that's amazing! Um, so it, it's not necessarily simple. Um, it does it, it does require knowledge of, of 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 how seaweed life cycles work. 
Um, but it it can be done, and and it is being done. And and yeah, the the, the important thing to, to 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 understand about this though is it, it it's a win win. It it actually doesn't require us to add fertilizer to the water, and it doesn't take up space from from the wild world. It increases. Um, biodiversity it actually increases habitat for the rest for, for the world for for, for for wild species so i mean there's 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 no win-win like that on land on land if you, a piece of well, apart from using brownfield sites um usually there's this argument going on between what do we use it for? you put houses there are you yeah. going to turn it into a forest or are you going to grow crops on it you can only do one thing on it and quite often you need to input um fertilizers and mm-hmm. so you don't have to do that so it, it's just it's just a, an easy low-hanging fruit we just need to get ourselves organized and it sounds like the scottish government um, has heard the message oh that's amazing well i've long held the same a very similar view of of small mollusks you know like you know good mussels and things like that i mean people i was involved for a little while with some um some uh, sea fish uh conservation uh, action uh, with with, uh, with a campaign to get a ban on um, discarding fish at sea, and part of that sort of expanded my huge knowledge of the understanding of sustainability of fish species, which is a real a real killer for me. I mean, you look at the moment, you take one look at Instagram, you'll see lots of people cooking monkfish the size of a small trout. You know, they're about eight inches long, ten inches long, and I just think, well, even twenty years ago when I was a trainee chef, the fish were fifteen, twenty times that size. We are eating right to the bottom of that resource and so you wanted to understand what the most sustainable things were and if you wanted to eat fish for me it was things like crab and absolutely stuff like mussels and cockles and bits and pieces like that so the seaweed is kind of the next step it's it's doing the same thing it's cleaning the environment it's not doing any harm to anything else it's a i mean i'm blown away i cannot wait i might even go and find out from the people in the scottish government what's going on with this seaweed training i'm quite excited uh, yeah, I mean, it looks very interesting. Um, yeah. Oban, Oban Seaweed Academy to help grow industry in UK. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. So, so offering training and research information. Okay. So, yeah, that definitely looks like a, a, a way forward. Okie dokie. Brilliant. Well, good old Scotland. Um, fantastic. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> what form... So uh, just to zoom in on that a sec... 10% of our diet then becomes, um, or up to 10% of our diet coming from seaweed, sounds like a great thing for the environment, sounds like quite a nice thing from a taste point of view for me. What am I going to get from my seaweed? Am I going to get protein, carbohydrate, nutrients, and presumably a mix of all three? Um, in most things, but not any carbohydrate. Well, not very much. The thing about seaweeds is the carbohydrate in them is not very digestible for humans. Okay, uh, It's quite useful. It's used as a thickening agent. Um, so it, it does have some uses, but mm-hmm. it doesn't provide much in the way of, of calories, um, which is actually quite good for some people because yeah, obviously yeah. it can be, can, be, can be used to fill you up without um, ad- adding to your waistline. Um, but it's never going to take, there's no seaweed that's going to take the place of, of wheat or potatoes. Mm. Um, it is, some of them, and they're all different what they're, what they're um, contain, so they're, they're not all the same. Sure. Uh, but certainly most of them contain protein. Some of them contain a lot of protein. Um, so um, dulse, which is a traditionally very popular in, in, in um, Ireland and Wales, contains more protein than, than sterling steak, for example. Um, uh, but nearly all seaweeds contain a decent selection of, of trace elements and vitamins. Um uh, so particularly iodine, for example, in kelp. But yeah, b- between them, they they um they 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 contain most most vitamins, most um, trace elements. And again, there there's access. They provide access to to minerals that aren't available in in terrestrial ecosystems. Something like iodine. If you, if there's no iodine in the soil around you, there's there's no way to replace it. There's no way for the plants to get it from. Uh-huh. But this, any, the seawater's full of basically a bit of everything. So the seaweeds have got access to, to, to nutrients that aren't available elsewhere in, elsewhere in, the, in the terrestrial ecosystem. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the best one example is, is, is sea lettuce, which is a green seaweed, which is basically a seaweed equivalent of a, of a, of a, a multivitamin tablet. It's got basically got everything rich in all sorts of nutrients that we need. Um, the only thing it doesn't really have is vitamin D. Um, 
but it has almost everything else. Wow. Uh, okay. Well, vitamin D, I think, is made by our bodies, isn't it? In the sunshine, is that right? It takes place in the skin, I think. It it, it does, yeah. But it, it's it's there's only a limit, quite a limited amount of food you get it from. Although we we'll go back to the, to our oily fish, it, it definitely comes from that. Oh yeah, love a bit of oily fish. Okay. Wow. I mean, I had so many questions to ask about seaweed. Um, I'm going to give you one more, and then I promise we're moving on to, to point number three. I love this. Uh, talking to you, Jeff, it's like a distilled. Um, it's like <laughs> it's like distilled research. I love it. It's absolutely brilliant. So I'm going to steal one more fact from you on seaweed, and then I'm going to move on. So um, we talked about that that sea lettuce as being a, a natural kind of vitamin tablet. That's brilliant. So is that a plant? Then is that seaweed a plant? That seaweed is, right? There's three different groups of seaweed, reds, greens, and browns. Green seaweeds are very primitive plants. Um, red seaweeds are sort of a sister group to very primitive plants that, that evolved a very long time ago, but went through a difficult period in their, in their early development where they lived in an extreme environment. I and did their, that. their genetics got distilled down to the kind of the most basic. They had the simplest genome possible. But that meant that when life got less difficult, they didn't really have much opportunity to genetically diversify, which means so a lot, there's a loads and loads of red seaweeds, but they don't seem to have got beyond red. They didn't evolve into anything more. So red okay. seaweeds are kind of almost plants. Brown seaweeds, which includes kelp, um, aren't, aren't plants at all. They're a completely different branch of life. They are multicellular algae. Much more recently evolved, only kind of last 50 million years and much more recently than that, that they really diversified. So things like racks as well, uh-huh. which there are lots of in the UK. So those aren't plants they, um, and they're not even remotely like plants. They have a completely different structure. And, um, uh, yeah, so that's 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 the answer to that question. It's a whole new kingdom uh, to study. Fantastic. OK. Um, wow, I love that. I thought I was going to get a good answer there, and I got an amazing answer, but it's answer it's created even more questions. Uh, we're going to have to park seaweed there. I don't think we can spare it any more time, but um, maybe we'll have to have you back in the future, Jeff, to give us a, a purely seaweed-based episode. Um, yeah, I'd love to. I, I'd love to hear it, definitely. Okay, um, so you've got one more thing that you're allowed to change in your brave new world um, of, of food, and I'm going to hand over the mic to you once again, just going to shut up and let you tell me what it is okay so this really comes out of um what we've already been saying um i'd say reform the foraging laws um which are hopelessly out of date in a rapidly changing world our foraging laws predate the current boom of an interest in foraging and need to be thoroughly reviewed commercial forager miles irving has openly stated that he believes the current laws are unenforceable and they can do whatever he likes which has led him into a, a long-running legal dispute with Natural England regarding the commercial collecting of sea kale at Dungeness, which is an SSSI. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I have to agree, he's basically right. Regarding the, the morality of it, the rights and wrongs of it, the simple fact is the the, the law as it currently stands is basically unenforceable. Um, it, there's been no prosecutions under it, and, and he has, he's pushed it to the limit, and Natural England have had to really work hard to stop him from taking that sea kale. Um, there's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a growing number of places where local restrictions have had to be put in place. A good example is Epping Forest, which mm-hmm. is in, in North London. Um, um, but there's no consistency or overall strategy. Other places, overcollection of seaweeds is becoming a problem. This is true in Southeast England. Um, other European countries have systems for controlling these things, especially fungi. Uh, and given that I think we're heading for an era of food insecurity, it seems that a wide ranging review of the legal situation is now needed. Mm. Uh, we need to ask the question what the future relationship is going to be between food security, foraging, both commercial and private, and the conservation and protection of wild species and wild places. We need to strike a new balance, taking into account everything we know about the natural world and about the contemporary foraging renaissance and, and the food insecurity that's, that's to come. Wow. Um, yeah, we kind of we almost sort of need that first, don't we? Because otherwise, if we try and sort of switch to a kind of more centralised UK based food system um, and everyone thinks, actually, I'm going to go and get my own or I'm going to nip out and do some foraging. That if, if, I mean, there's, as you say, it's been an incredible explosion in the interest in foraging. Yeah, yeah. we've already got a problem and it's a serious problem. It's, it's, it, Epping Forest, the, the people who manage Epping Forest were, were, were right to ban fungi foraging. It's simply a case of 
the of population pressure. You think of how many people live inside the M25. Yeah. And the only places you can go fungi foraging to, to, to you know, any decent large wild spaces are Hampstead Heath and Epping Forest. Uh, and there's just not space there for six million people to go foraging. Mm. So, but it needs to be localized as well. I, I should have said this in the introduction. In, in Italy, in Switzerland, and, and, and in France, fungi foraging laws are, are localized. They, they, they are or regional. How how it's managed is 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 dependent on the situation in a particular place. And and you know the contrast between Epping Forest is 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 where you are and the wilds of Scotland. Mm. It's not going to make any difference how many people go foraging for fungi in northern Scotland because there's just so much space for the amount of people. So that's part of it. Just just having a, a, a single law that applies everywhere in the UK doesn't make sense. Uh, and, and this is reflected in Europe as well. Like in 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 throughout Scandinavia, there's there's a completely freedom. Anyone can go anywhere and take anything, provided they don't damage anything. That's only possible because there's this massive amount of land and, and a relatively small amount of people. The other extreme being the northern half of Belgium, where fungi foraging is completely banned because there's just not enough wild space and there's too many people who want to do it. So that, that, that's, that's just one as- aspect of it. So not only does it have to be regionalised, we have to actually think about how the world's changed since mm. the laws were currently. In, it, it, there's no point having laws that you can't enforce. Uh, Mars Irving is right. So I just I'm just trying to ask, ask open the debate here. I'm just saying, yeah, yeah. Uh, we we can't just go on like we are uh, um, having this big argument. There's a lot of arguments going on about it. We need to actually sit down and have a have a, 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 a think from from the scratch. What is it? What what should our foraging laws look like? What do we what do we want them to do? And and how should we change them? Brilliant, brilliant. I think with stuff like that, you get a lot of knee-jerk reaction. And particularly, I think, when you're talking about a sort of common resource, um, that's sort of part of the danger, is that people think, well, hang on, you're trying to take one of my freedoms away by controlling my foraging. But ultimately, if we don't have any control on foraging, they will all take their own freedoms away because they won't have the ability to yeah, This was called the, the, the Tragedy of the Commons by Garrett Hardin, who was an ecologist in the 1960s and 1970s, an ecologist who was demonised for having the audacity to say that human population should be controlled. Um, but, yeah, he, 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 his big idea was the Tragedy of the Commons. He basically said if you've got a, 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 a general resource that anyone can use, uh, uh, everyone will just abuse it, and, and and it's reflected in fishing in the high seas, and it's what climate change is a perfect example of it. Everyone can dump their CO two into the atmosphere, so if you don't control it, then um, you end up with a disaster. Um, yeah, Garrett Harding's tragedy of the commons. Oh my God, Garrett Harding! I'm gonna I'm picking up a lot of reading I need to do here. Um, okay, well I. I t- I'd quite like to open the discussion on human population, uh, but I'm not sure the Madam's Cast is the place to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere's the place to do it. That's, uh, that's part of the problem. Nobody wants to talk about it. But um, anyway, I'm not going to push it any further here and now. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I, no, nor am I. And there's some, I think there's, I, you know, I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking there must be some good, you know, there must be some sort of obvious answers to this to which need to change people's thinking to sort of, you know, replace yourself and leave it at that. But I kind of, yeah, I mean, this is not. We, we can't even have the debate at the minute. The minute no. if you even open the open the debate, you get jumped upon. Um, okay. So the first thing we have to, we, well, it, it's the same in economics. If you talk about degrowth in economics, you're treated like an idiot. Oh, you don't understand basic modern economics. No, I understand ecology, and I understand that ecology comes first. The collect, we we can't just keep growing. That's just a basic fact about reality. I don't care what the economists say. Yeah. The economists need to, to to listen to the ecologists. But yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of stuck from the very start, isn't it? Because you've got a finite resource within the globe right that's yep. finite so ultimately you, you, you can't have exponential you, you can't have endless growth yeah. and, the, but the, and, and until very recently the answer is just even if you can get someone these people to accept that the growth has got to stop they say well we know we're near that's well you know we're not actually overpopulated now the growth doesn't have to stop yet of course it does look at what's going on in the world we have we have not only have we reached the point that the, the growth needs to stop, we reached it decades ago. We're way into overshoot. Yeah, amazing. So, um, 
reform the foraging laws. Okay, great. We're going to do that. That's going to protect some environment, and it's also going to create more sustainable. Uh, yeah, sustainability living. is the key. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then we can have a certain number of foragers who are collecting a certain volume of wild food, and that can be a sort of sustainable living and income for them as well. So I kind of I, I like that idea. That I'm okay. Before this conversation, I was probably not for foraging reform. I would, would have said, don't be daft. We don't need that. You know a lot more about it than I do. You're living in a much more highly populated area. And then I suppose if I scratch my head and think back, I've definitely, definitely been in the limited beech woods in, in old Devon and found, you know, evidence of people harvesting every yeah. single tiny emerging pin of a chanterelle. This is, this is why I'm moving to a remote part of Wales. I'm moving to the part... I've, I'm, for me, South East England is way too overpopulated. I want to go somewhere where there's less people. Okay. Not because I don't like people, it's because I like being surrounded by wildlife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some people can be pretty wild. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Well, what an incredible three things. Uh, I, I, you know, I love... I love this project, the Madam's Cast. It's, it's, it's really good fun. I speak to a huge, broad spectrum of people with different views from all over the place. And the one thing that never fails to happen is that I end up with more questions than I've got answers uh, and more ideas and more things to think about. And I sometimes find that intimidating, but actually it's the only way forward. Um, and so um, thank you very much for, for for bringing not only not only vociferous and um, well thought out well-constructed, blindingly brilliant ideas to the show. But um, for backing them up so well with all the background knowledge that you've got, that's fantastic, Jeff. Thanks so much. Um, I think we need to move on from the main part of the of the Madam's Car. So I think we need to get out of these th- these three things and move into the the last three things. If you feel that you're you're ready yep. to progress as well, okay, excellent. Um, so we'll we'll. We'll action all of those. I've put them on my to-do list, so they'll, they'll, we'll get to them in the end. They'll, they'll get that sorted out, no problem. Um, and now we've got a bit of a, light, a slightly more light-hearted end to the show. Um, <clears throat> you get to pick uh, three things, another three things. I don't know why I'm obsessed with the number three. Uh, anyway, you get to choose a drink to drink while you are reading a book you've chosen, uh, uh, which is sort of a desert island scenario. It doesn't have to be on a desert island per se, but at least, you know, you can't go to the bookshelf and pick several, as it were. Um, a drink to have while you're reading that. And then you get to nominate someone. This is just for fun. You don't have to do it. But you get to nominate someone as a future guest of the Madam's cast. Um, they can be alive, dead, real, fictitious. It's up to you. Um, obviously, I like it if there's someone alive and interested because hopefully they'll come on and we can follow the chain. Um, but over to you. Over to you. Which... OK, I'll start with the, the book. Um... It's the easiest one. It's, the book is called Seaweeds, Edible, Available and Sustainable by Ole G. Muritsen, uh, oh. which is the best. It came out, I think, about 2012. That's the, 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 the best and most comprehensive book uh, about this topic of, of, of seaweeds, both from terms of foraging and, um, and cultivation. So, yeah, it's Seaweeds, Edible, Available and Sustainable by Ole Muritsen. The drink... Um, the simple answer is tea, and uh, it's the builder's version. That's 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 my my the last drink I'd give up. But uh, just to kind of keep you on topic, failing that, if if we couldn't, if our supply of tea dro- dro- dried up, um, there is something that's becoming really popular in in the foraging circles. It's Ivan Ivan Chai, which is a, or Russian tea, uh-huh. um, which was a uh, hundred years ago one of the biggest exports from Russia. It was fermented rose bay willow herb. Um, oh. So rose bay willow herb is a plant that's, that used to be rare in the UK. It nat- naturally uh, grows on, on, on rocks cree, but it became very common when the railways were built. Um, uh, and is now, you can find it on, on, on roadsides and rough land all over the country. But it makes a wonderful um, fermented tea. That It's not caffeinated, but it, it, apart from that, it's the closest thing you'll get to, to tea tea. So you just need to kind of, it's quite complicated how to make it. You have to kind of pick it just before the leaves, just before the uh, flowers come out and you, okay. you, you you roll them two or three at a time. You let them ferment under a damp tea towel for a couple of days. Okay. Uh, and then you flavor them with things like rose petals and, 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 and you allow them to dry in the sun. And the result is something that is remarkably like black tea. Wow. Um, so yeah, Ivan Chai. 
Stephen Chai. Oh, hang on a minute. Does he, um, okay, and spread by the railways, like bland sandwiches. Bland sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. So, well, you see a lot of Rose Bay Willow Herb. I mean, this is a, this is a common plant in my... It's, it's common now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, okay. Well, we get through a lot of tea in this house. We might give that a go. Um, yeah, it's yeah, def- definitely worth having a go. All right. Okay. Well, I'll take that on because I have tried it as a kind. Of, I've tried the stems as a sort of slightly steamed vegetable, yeah. and I think yeah, they're just a bit, bit gooey, and, and not, you yeah. have to get them when they're very young. They're, they're okay, but there are better stem vegetables. They are okay. There are better stem vegetables. I would go, I would go along with that. Um, oh, I'm going to bracket them with beech leaves, which is hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> fine. So. Uh, that's the book and the drink cupboard, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the book idea. I'm going to have to um, have to look that one up as well. Um, however, we need a nomination from you, sir. Right, the nomination is my friend Sarah Watson, who oh. recently made her debut on television on uh, Marcus Waring's new program series about running a small holding. I think Tales from a Kitchen Garden. Oh. She is another up and coming wild food educator, and her particular speciality is wild booze oh i like her already <laughs> i've been making uh, i've been making a birch bitters i got the idea from the icelandic people via liz knight's book forage last year um and that's brilliant stuff yeah like it's a bit like wintergreen you get from yeah. the twigs of the of the birch tree yeah exactly exactly i really like it it's got a sort of um it's uh, have you been did so you well i mean i've, I've made tea from birch twig tea is actually quite common I've, i'm guessing you're talking about the same flavor but you're somehow concentrating it down you make a tincture by stuffing it into loads of high strength booze ah right yeah, yeah. and then the, the tannins and everything and the flavor and everything all come out of the birch twigs you can use it when it's got leaves and a few catkins on as well but actually um it's better in the winter i think i i i pick it just when the birch starts to go that purple colour in the very sort of pre-spring. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, yeah, just that bit. I, I think that gives it the most amazingly... Um, some people but, say it tastes like soap. I think it tastes beautifully perfumed. <laughs> um, but there we go. Now, Sarah, yeah, you definitely need to talk to Sarah if you're I'm interested in, 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 in tinctures and, and anything to do with, with alcohol and wild food. But she's also taking over my, my patch in Sussex to teach people fungi foraging. So. Oh, I like that. I like that she's handing that on. That's fa- that you're handing that on. That's fantastic. Yeah, there was um, a queue of people who wanted to take it, but she, she, was, she was first in the queue. Well, there probably was, wasn't there, actually, these days. Um, I have to say, having moved to Scotland um, and, um, uh, and seen that, you know, some fairly pristine woodland, not always that diverse in, in tree species, but some fairly pristine woodland, I've been blown away by the um, by the fungi uh, action up here. It's quite quite something, um, uh, and long may it remain so. Let's get those foraging laws and reformed and in place before anything else bad happens. Okay, so Sarah Watson nominated Tai Chi um, or a, or either either even Ivan Chi or a black tea for for your drink, and seaweeds edible, sustainable, and available to read. Well, that sounds like a fun-packed afternoon to me. No doubt. Yeah, and I just actually, while I was you talking, I've googled the name of the of the lady who 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 worked out the the life cycle of lava. Or Nori is the Japanese name for it. It's a Kathleen Baker, oh. and she's known in Japan as the Mother of the Sea, and has statues erected in her memory. She's revered as the saviour of the Japanese nori industry. Wow. There you go. I mean, disappointed as I am that you weren't hanging off my every word and you had time to reference the internet. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think, please, will you tell us just briefly again what the name of your books are and where to get them and how we find you and all that stuff. Right, you can find me online at jeffdan.co.uk and the book is called Edible Plants, A Forager's Guide to the Plants and Seaweeds of Britain, Ireland and Temperate Europe. You can buy signed copies from my website or you can buy them from the usual online suspects. Okay, excellent, excellent. And I would highly recommend that you do. We, um, I am a huge fan uh, of edible mushrooms and I'm rapidly falling in love with edible plants. So uh, delighted to have both of those in my possession. I recently gifted a copy to a friend as well. So that's, uh, that's also good. 
Um, are you appearing at any exciting countryside type events where we might be able to go and watch you demonstrating and talking? Well, at the moment, my life's in, in, in stasis because I'm moving to Keradigian. So, okay. um, uh, yeah, when I get there, I will reassess. Um, um, I'm sure I will appear on various other things. Um, but, yeah, right, right now I'm planning on moving my life from Sussex to Wales. I think that's, that's enough to be dealing with in one go. Oh, how exciting. Uh, are you planning your garden? My, well, it's more of the more of a garden. It's five, it's five acres of land. If wow. we get the property that we're we're currently trying to buy with a with a, a wonderful old um, archaic canal and wild wild um, wildlife pond system that's been allowed to get out of control. So I'm going to re- restore a wildlife pond system. Wow. Um, plenty of work to do down there. Any flow to that canal? I mean, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it flows when it, a, there's a seasonal stream that runs oh, along okay. the side of the property and, and a spring at the top of it. So it, whenever it rains, this canal fills up with water and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the wildlife pond fills up. But I, I think the current owners are stuck a, a, a bridge in from, to, to an to a island in the middle of the pond and they pierced the liner. So I've got to completely um, work out how to get this this wildlife pond back into action okay. I'm, I'm i'm rambling uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, can't, I can't wait i'm just going to spend the, the next 20 years on, on that five acre small holding in southwest wales having a great time that's that that's my plan for the rest of my life well i'm going to come and see you whether you want me to or not i'm going to turn up wrapped in seaweed clutching a <laughs> bottle of birch bitters uh, to celebrate your your new life um jeff huge thanks for coming on brilliant things definitely sparking debate I can't wait to get this episode broadcast. Uh, listeners, uh, follow Jeff. You can find him all over the place. Go and look at his stuff. Definitely buy his book. What a brilliant recording. Thank you so much, Jeff. Okay. Bye-bye. Right, See you Have later. Have a nice day. And you too. Bye.